Hi, this is Pastor Scott Stroud, and I'd like to thank you for joining us online today as you're watching this sermon series. I know that COVID has had a big impact on the church, and many people have been viewing from home uh, for three years now. And so, if you're one of those, thank you for coming and interacting with us online. But I would also like to extend a personal invitation to come and check us out here at Elam. And we know that fellowship is very important. According to the Bible, we should not uh, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And as you're thinking about, can you come now and, and venture out and join us uh, in, in person, uh, we would like to invite you and welcome you into the fellowship aspect of our worship time. Hope to see you soon on some Sunday at 10 a.m. definition of extravagant is lacking restraint in spending money or using resources. There are many instances in the New Testament of people who uh, gave extravagant gifts. Zacchaeus offered to give half of his possessions to the poor because of a conversation that he'd had with Jesus in his home. Some of the new believers in Acts, in order to support the new church and those that were poor in it, sold fields to give to the church. The widow at the temple treasury gave a coin worth one-eighth of a cent, which Jesus indicated was all that she had to live on. However, here in our passage, in uh, our scripture today in Luke, we see what I believe to be the most extravagant gift of all. This gift lacked restraint. It went all out. It didn't hold back. And this morning we're going to learn a bit about this woman who gave this lavish gift. We're going to comment on the reaction of those who witnessed it. And then we're going to consider Jesus' reaction. At the end, we're going to apply some of the lessons that we can learn from this passage to our own lives. And so first off, let's look, look at this gift itself. In this Luke passage, the gift is simply called an alabaster flask of ointment. However, all three of the other Gospels record this event. In the Mark passage, it's called perfume made of pure nard, which comes from the spikenard root, which was only grown in the Himalayan mountains at that time. And in both Mark and John, we see that it's worth 300 denarii, or about a year's wages, for a common laborer. And if you compare that with today's minimum wage, that works out to be about $47,000. Now, one of the reasons it was so expensive is because the Himalayas were almost 3,000 miles from Jerusalem. This nard ointment was used in perfuming, as we see in Mark 14, that when she broke this jar, the whole house filled with the smell of it. So the question this morning is, would you do such a thing? Would you spend a year's wages on perfume just to pour it out publicly on somebody's feet, especially when they're in the middle of a, a dinner at somebody else's house? I just want you to know that there are differing opinions about who this unnamed woman is in Luke. The text here just says that she was a woman of the city, a sinner. However, if you accept the traditional view that the church has had for centuries, they linked these four gospel accounts. They said they were all the same event there. And if so, then we must conclude that she is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. We see this in John 11, verses 1 through 2. 
It says, now a certain man of, was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so, why would Mary do such an extravagant thing? Well, one of the reasons was that Jesus had just raised her brother from the dead. People have spent sometimes their entire life savings to try to cure a loved one who has a critical disease. How grateful would you be if your brother or daughter or son was not only cured, but raised from the dead? I think that after Mary witnessed that miracle, she realized in a very profound way that earthly treasures were useless in the light of eternity. Another clue in the Luke text here is that she is identified as a sinner. Now, we don't know much about Mary of Bethany before her brother's resurrection and We don't really actually hear from her in the New Testament after this anointing of Jesus. She's not mentioned again. That is, unless we consider the possibility that Mary of Bethany is actually Mary Magdalene. There is not definitive proof proof scripturally that this is the case. There are so many Marys that are mentioned throughout the New Testament, it would have been helpful if they had middle names and surnames like we have today, so we could have differentiated between them. However, I would offer three insights that I found interesting regarding this possibility as I researched this. And by the way, I spent about four hours looking at just this paragraph that I'm presenting to you this morning. First of all, the Catholic Church, for much of its history, has held this view. In fact, they don't have separate feast days for Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene, like the Eastern Orthodox Church does. The second and more convincing to me is the wording in John 12, 7. The disciples are upset about this seeming waste of money caused by Mary's extravagance, and they begin to complain. And then Jesus rebukes them by saying, now listen, leave her alone, She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. I never noticed that before in that passage. She kept most of it for the day of his burial. And so, who do we see in Matthew 27 at the cross? Do we see Mary of Bethany? No, we see Mary Magdalene. And who is it that was helping Jesus' burial preparation in Mark 16.1? It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Salome, or Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now we know who uh, Mary, the mother of James, is. That was a different Mary. However, Mary Magdalene is there at the cross, at at the tomb, preparing the body for the burial. Third, listen to the comments made by Dr. R. Herbert, who holds a PhD in the languages, cultures, and archaeology of the ancient Near East and biblical world. Highlighting John 11:2, he writes, first quoting the verse, this Mary was the same one who poured uh, perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair, saying the same one rather than one of the women who. Okay, so he says, this is the same one. This is a very unusual thing, by the way, for a woman to come in and actually unloose her hair, which was very unusual in that culture, 
and then begin to wipe somebody's feet with their hair. And so what he's saying here is, this is uh, Jesus is calling the tension to this particular one. In fact, it says that down through the ages, she will be remembered because of this act. Okay? Would Christ have put so much emphasis on this event if there was a second instance of two virtually identical cases? Almost like 95% of the things match up in this, these verses. And so, indeed, if Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene are one and the same, it would shed some light on the wording in Luke 7, 37, which labels her as a woman of the city, a sinner. Because we know that Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. And many commentators believe that the term, a woman of the city, was synonymous with what we have in our current slang when we say, a woman of the night. And so, there's a probability that she was a prostitute. And therefore, we see this woman who has been enslaved by the devil, seven demons, and by the sex trade that is freed by the Lord. Now, whether or not you agree with me with all these connections I've made regarding these woman, this woman's identity, and in fact, I don't know if I agree with myself. I'm still struggling with it a little bit, but there are certain things that I felt like were important. The plain fact is, is that she was a woman who was filled with such gratitude that she burst into a dinner party hosted by a religious leader and then knelt on the ground before Jesus, poured expensive ointment on his feet, wiped it with her hair in a culture where it would have been seen as loose and lewd to do such a thing. So this is why the host, Simon, is so shocked. In fact, he challenges Jesus' messianic claim by saying, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman was touching him, for she is a sinner. And since I've already made some connections here regarding the identity of this woman as Mary, that are, I think, a bit shaky, I may as go all the way in and make another historical speculation. And by the way, these speculations don't take away at all from the message of this text. I think they just add some context to it that I think can be helpful, not to mention they're kind of fun to explore. One of the articles I read when I was researching about who this woman was in Luke, uh, there was an article by a man by the name of William Mounts. He stated that the account in Luke must be a different account than the ones in the other three Gospels. And one of the main reasons he gives for this is that in the Luke account, the host is named Simon the Pharisee. In the Matthew and Mark account, the host is called Simon the leper. And he says that a leper is not allowed to be a Pharisee because he would have been considered unclean and under the wrath of God. Others, however, believe that he indeed had been one of the Pharisees, contracted leprosy, was healed by Jesus, and then restored to his position as a Pharisee. I want to call you to your attention here that being named a Pharisee doesn't necessarily mean that he was on the council or part of the Sanhedrin. In fact, uh, according to Jewish philosopher Philo, there were about 6,000 Pharisees across the Roman world in the first century. And so there is a possibility, if not probability, that this Pharisee was one who had been personally touched by Jesus. And this comes to bear in the parable that Jesus tells him. 
He says, Simon, can I tell you something? The story is about two people that owe debt. Obviously, one represents the woman and one represents Simon. Notice that each owes a debt and neither one of them can pay it. In this story, both debts are canceled. And, that, and this tells us that both Simon and the woman had entered into a state of being forgiven by Jesus. This was not the case of many other Pharisees. Jesus called many of them whitewashed tombs or children of the devil. But not Simon here. He had been forgiven. If Simon had been in fact healed of leprosy and accepted the good news about his sins being forgiven, which seems to be insinuated by the phrase, he who is forgiven little loves little, so he was forgiven something, right? This would explain why Jesus is in his home in the first place. From a worldly perspective, a prostitute with seven demons would have many more sins to account for than a man who would try to religiously keep the law his entire life. And yet, as Simon well knew, both debts need to, needed to be paid. Both were dependent upon God for his mercy. Danny Faber is going to be speaking about um, uh, the, the sheep and the parable of the 99 and the lost one uh, while I'm in Mesa, Arizona at a conference in a few weeks here. And I don't want to steal his thunder or anything, but our story here, the one about Simon and Mary, who's the one and who's the 99? Well, obviously Mary's the one. She was the one that was lost. Simon was in the fold. He was part of the religious leaders. He was part of the group. Now note, I said perceives. <laughs> okay, that's the key point. All sheep need the love and the care of the shepherd. But the 99 many times don't perceive it. <laughs> It's not until we have wandered far from the flock that we begin to realize how desperate we really are. And this is why the disciples were so distraught when Jesus was arrested. The shepherd was stricken and the sheep scattered. And it's not until you realize that the shepherd's gone that you're like, wow, I'm really lost here. Next, we turn our attention to the reaction of the disciples when they see Mary pouring this expensive ointment on Jesus' head and feet. In Mark 14, it says, they scolded her. They were muttering to themselves, this could have been sold for a ton of money and given to the poor. And in John 12, we find out who the main complainer is, namely Judas. And the truth is revealed that it wasn't that he was really interested in the poor. He was a thief. And he was upset because he wouldn't have a chance to take this money as well. Jesus responds by saying, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and wherever you want, you can give, do, uh, do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told of her in her memory. Mary, by her actions, had just stepped into the prophetic plan of God perhaps without even knowing that she was doing it. She was just following her heart. She was just using her money to bless Jesus. However, the Lord reveals to everyone how significant that act really was. 
And how can we relate this to a modern example? It would be like somebody coming up to you with a beautiful bouquet of flowers. And they give you these flowers, and then you turn and you thank them, saying, yeah, these are going to be used for my casket in a few days. <laughs> kind of a shock, wouldn't it? And that's exactly what happened. She pours this out as a beautiful thing, and Jesus said, she's preparing for my burial. And so as we shift and try to apply all this to our current situation, I would ask the question, which figure in the story are you? Are you Simon? Someone whose life has been touched by Jesus? Someone who has seen, perhaps, his miraculous power? Someone who has invited the Savior in to dine with you? And yet you look at the sinfulness of others and wonder how Jesus could bring himself to touch them. Now, before you reject this as an option that this is you, I want you to consider this scenario. Think about how you would feel this morning if the following individuals came walking into church. A woman who was addicted to fentanyl and had lost her children to child protective services due to neglect. Or a homosexual man who was dying of AIDS. Or a woman who had multiple abortions. Or a man who had sexually molested his sister when he was a teenager. Or a homeless woman who smelled like urine and moldy clothing. Or a Democratic senator. Or a gun rights lobbyist. You see, it's not as easy as you think, right? We like to believe that if we were back in the times of Jesus, we would have done it so much different. We wouldn't have been like the Pharisees. We wouldn't have been like the disciples complaining. But the truth is, we're all the same. We don't change. We all compartmentalize individuals. We all make uninformed assumptions. We all need Jesus to say to us, hey, can I tell you a story? Or maybe this morning you're Judas. You're in church today, not because you have a deep connection with Christ or his death. You're here for the perks. You're here for the fellowship. Makes you feel good. Others help you when you come. Now you wouldn't call that stealing in your mind, but that's just what it is. Always on the take. Always wondering what God can do for you. And if you're wondering if perhaps you fall into this category, even in a little way, consider your prayer life. Are most of your prayers the gimme kind? God, I need this. God, I want that. God, why aren't you answering me? Or maybe this morning, you're Mary. You've been forgiven much, so you love much. You don't just talk about loving, you actually put your money where your mouth is. And I'm ashamed to say that I haven't even considered giving the kind of sacrifice that Mary did, $47,000. But maybe that's an indication that I haven't fully grasped just how lost I was. Perhaps I haven't spent enough time at Jesus' feet. Maybe I've been running around too much like Martha, trying to do stuff for the Lord. As I wrap up this morning, I think if the truth were told about all of us, we're probably all a mix of the three people there that are mentioned at different times. And this morning we have an opportunity to re-examine our level of love for Jesus, our extravagance for him. 
Now, I'm not telling you to run out and sell your home and come in here next week and drop $47,000 into the offering plate, although Daryl would be very happy if you did that, I'm sure. <laughs> what I am telling you to do is to allow your heart to radically respond to love because of what Jesus has done for you. If you feel love welling up in your heart for the Lord and you think, I should do X, right? Don't talk yourself out of it. Well, what will people think? And well, it's not socially acceptable. And well, all that money could go for better purposes like the poor or maybe me. People who are in love do crazy, spontaneous things to show it. They buy jewelry, which by the way is totally impractical for any kind of purpose in life. They write songs. They travel a long ways to see a lover buying a plane ticket that they really can't afford. And so my question to you this morning is, couldn't we all use a healthy dose of that kind of love, that merry, extravagant love toward the Lord today? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the stories in the scriptures. Some of them are a little hard to uh, figure out, but Lord, we see in this message that there was a woman who poured out her love for you. Lord, help us to do that this morning. Increase our love for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.